Okay, ladies, welcome. Okay, I vote time. <coughs> we started a uh, Mishnah last week, actually, a quite long Mishnah, Perik Vav. <coughs> Mishnah Vav, we talk in this Mishnah about the 48 acquisitions of wisdom. So uh, before last week, we thought that the Torah is acquired through learning. And we came to be surprised that it's true, you need to learn to become a scholar, but learning is actually only one of many preconditions in order to actually make an acquisition uh, of the Torah. And we went through them, and we explained them, uh, each one accordingly. The next... The next... uh, number that we're up to, I think we're up to 14. 14. Okay. What was the last one we said? 13. <laughs> what? <laughs> and I think we said 12 before that, if I'm correct. Bemikra. <laughs> okay, Bemikra. You have Mishnah also in your book? Mikra Mishnah. Okay. So in the last session, we basically learned that to be a, to a scholar, you must be fluent in Mikra. Mikra is uh, the Tanakh. It's important to study Tanakh and also to be fluent in Mishnah. Mishnah is uh, what we're doing now, but what it, what it really means is Halakha. Mishnah is a synonym for Halakha. Tamir has to know the laws in order that if uh, somebody asks him a question, he's able to answer, and he knows for himself as well. So that's the study of Mishnah. The study of Mishnah... In the olden days, used to be done by heart. Uh, before people's memories started to become weak, then they wrote it down for us. This is part of what's called Torah al it's the oral tradition. When the rabbis saw that people were forgetting, so they allowed us to write it down. But till today, there are some tzaddikim that review the Mishnayot over and over again until they know it, Ba'al Peh. I was prayed by Rabbi Moshe Feinstein, Shalom, and he would study Mishnayot in between the aliyot of the Sefer Torah. He didn't want to waste any time. So uh, in between aliyot, he would have a um, Mishnah next to him, and he would have his finger on the Mishnah, and one finger on the place, and when the Hazam would finish reading, he would do... And we were very impressed that the rabbi doesn't even want to waste one second. He reviewed Mishnayot many, many times, just in that little interval between the aliyot, which most people spend uh, usually talking or you know doing nonsense, and every aliyah, he caught another Mishnah. Uh, I recently read a story that um, he once went, when he was young, baking matzot. The tzaddikim, they bake matzot on Erev Pesach. There's a special law that says you're supposed to try to bake matzot on Erev Pesach after hatzot, after midday. Those matzot are considered very, very special. It's hard to you know, uh, to go to the matzah factory, Erev Pesach, especially if you're in, uh, you know, Puerto Rico. But the point is, those that are even local, it's not so easy to get to the matzah bakery, Erev Pesach, after Hatzot, and then let alone to bake matzot. So when he was young, he came to the matzah bakery with a little bag of flour, and uh, it seems the baker didn't know that he was a big rabbi, and like, you know, put him to the back of the line. So the rabbi didn't say anything, he had a shohan aruch in his hand, and he started reviewing shohan aruch sitting on the side. 
And one of the rabbis, Rabbi uh, Salman Musafi, was there, Allah was shalom. And he saw Chavavadiyah standing in the corner and he said to the baker, this is a big rabbi, please take him first. And they took his uh, uh, flower and they made from the matzot. But Rabbi Musafi said, I learned from Chavavadiyah a few things over here. Number one, uh, look at that, he's, he's carrying a Shohan Aruch with him at all times. He always has a book in his hand. And he doesn't waste his time. If, it, if his turn didn't come, he moved to the side and just reviewing. And he's reviewing these halachot. These are not the most difficult halachot he was reviewing, but the hachamim always are uh, studying and always have a book in their hand and they're always uh, reviewing. And he said, and the fact that he's able to study it in this matzah bakery where there's uh, chaos going on, and he's able to zone out from all the noise, and he's able to focus, that was just uh, as impressive as well. The next one is bimi'ut sechorah. What does mi'ut sechorah mean? Well, sechora, you know, means business. Business. Now, a tamir acham has to have a business. He has to have a trade. How is he going to support himself? Uh, he has to do something in order to, to make money. But the Mishnah reminds us that the tamir acham must, to become great in Torah, you cannot put your primary focus on your business. You have to put a minority share of your time in the business and put your majority share in the Torah. It is told about the Hafez Haim that he had a business. He had a little store in um, Radin. Like a, a, a store, a, a shop that sells, a, you know, grocery store. And his wife used to take care of it. And uh, from time to time, the Hafez Haim, I guess, uh, went in. And his opinion was to open up the store only for a few hours a day. And Hashem can send us the Panasan those few hours. And the rest of the day, you know, he would spend uh, uh, studying. Mi'ut the Gemara says that we don't find great tamid hachamim uh, in the business world because you cannot divide your brain into these two uh, into these two sections. You have to be totally devoted. Although some of the greatest rabbis did did carry positions and they had professions, but again, it was a side item just to make panasan, and they went back uh, to their learning. So that was what it means bimiut sehora. Today it's a little different. Today. It's been accepted that Tamidah Hamim are able to really devote themselves totally to Torah, and they get supported either by the community or by the, you know, the yeshiva or whatever it may be. Although that little stipend usually doesn't, uh, uh, you know, usually doesn't uh, make uh, a dent in the budget of the expensive way we live. But nonetheless, uh, a Tamidah Ham is allowed to go make some parnasa, but again, it should be. Uh, the mi'ut of his time. When he was young, his father had a store. And Hachamavadiyah was in Purat Yosef. I heard this story from Hacham Baruch. And Hachamavadiyah was in Purat Yosef, learning with Rabbi Azra Atiyah, the great rabbi. And one day, Hachamavadiyah doesn't show up. He doesn't come to the yeshiva. So Rabbi Atiyah was shocked. Rabbi Avadiyah was a very, very diligent student. He doesn't miss a second. Where, where is he? So they were embarrassed to tell him, but they said he went to work. His father needed an extra hand in the store. And, uh, you know, he told his son, listen, you can't learn all day long, you got to do something. Sure enough, Khamizrati knew where that store was. And he went. He goes into the store and he's shocked. He sees Achamavadya putting, uh, you know, cans on the shelf. <laughs> the, the future Gadolador. And he's involved in, uh, you know, uh, putting the uh, bananas on the shelf. So Khamizrati was very, very, very um, humble. He went to the father of Acham and he said, well, what's going on? He says, no, 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 don't convince me. I need the rabbi here. He has to work for me. I have a store. I have to make panasa. Rabbi Tis, I don't, I don't question it. No problem. 
He took off his jacket, his galabiyya, and he said, give me the robe, I'll work for you. He says, let Omadya go back to the yeshiva, I'll, I'll, I'll work for you. He says, no, no, I can't, no, 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 I'm serious. He says, I'm already a rabbi already, I'll work. Let him go back and be his... And he was very, very adamant. When Chabad father saw the Rabbi Atiyah is <laughs> to work in the grocery store, and he saw how much respect he gave to Sarabadya, he told him, go back to the yeshiva, and the rest is history. So in that case over there, Cham Ezra knew that this is not mi'utz hora. This is not going to be a minimum hora. If he's going to go to work, he's going to end up getting, uh, getting lost over there. That's the, uh, that's the lesson with that. Bimi'ut derech eretz. What is bimi'ut derech eretz? Shelo yem matsuim b'nei adam bashuk. Tamidah chamim have to be also very careful they associate with. Hakam uh, Baruch used to tell us that a tamid hakam has to be like a uh, expensive piece of jewelry, like a diamond, but you don't show it off that much. The reason why it's precious is because it's not seen too much, but the more something is seen, the cheaper it becomes. So if a tamid hakam finds himself at every party, and at every gathering, and at every event, so then already the people lose uh, respect for him, because uh, he's everywhere. He's, uh, so the hakam has to be uterichet, of course he has to be with the people, but he has to have a certain amount of modesty where he's not everywhere. Otherwise then the rabbi loses, or the tamin hakam can lose his, uh, he loses his stature. There is some value in, in things that you don't always see, that they, they're re- removed from the eye. That's one way of mi'uterich eretz. Another explanation of mi'uterich eretz means that a tamid hakam has to have a minimal derich eretz, meaning, not God forbid, minimal ethics. You have to be ethical. Derich eretz. We would never tell a scholar that you should have less derich eretz. doesn't mean that. Derich eretz means the way of the world. But in this sense, mi'uterich eretz means he cannot be shy. It's derich eretz to be shy. But you shouldn't be so shy. Why not? Because uh, to be uh, uh, wise, you have to be willing to ask questions. And you can't be embarrassed. When the student is in the shiru with the rabbi, if he's going to have a lot of derech edits, he's going to say, oh, I don't want to ask the rabbi, I don't want to interrupt, it's ga'ava, who am I to question? So he's never going to learn anything. So therefore he has to minimize his derech edits and allow himself to be, not brazen, but a little aggressive in order to ask questions where he doesn't, uh, if he doesn't understand. That's, uh, that would be another interpretation. anug. Okay, minimizing one's pleasure. What does that mean? So this is uh, a very important uh, yesod. Torah is not like another subject. For Torah to enter a person, it has to be under certain conditions. And one of those conditions is a person has to be willing to deprive himself or herself from certain physical pleasures of this world. And it seems that the deprivation of physical pleasures brings a person to spiritual levels. The Ramban says it like this. The elevation of the body is the deprivation of the soul. The deprivation of the body is the elevation of the soul. It's like a scale. When the body is pampered, the soul is uh, handicapped. But when the soul is pampered, then the, when the body is, is limited, then the soul is able to rise. It, it doesn't work like that in mathematics. You could be uh, you know, a person that's very, very materialistic and be a great mathematician and a great historian. A lot of them are. But to be a great scholar, for Torah to enter, the Gemara says, before a person prays that Torah should enter his stomach, he has to pray that food exits his stomach. 
Moshe Rabbeinu, when he went up to get the Torah, he could not eat, he could not drink. That's an extreme example of mi'ut ta'anug. Why is it like that? Why is it like that? Well, it, it seems, it seems, we, there's another Mishnah Perkei Avot that says, Kachi darkashil Torah, this is the way of Torah. Padba melech tochal. You have to be willing to eat a minimal amount of bread, a small amount of water, and to live a, a, a life of deprivation to a certain degree. And if you do that, then already the Torah, will, it seems spiritual and physical don't go together. So when you try to put them together, it, it doesn't go. There's a blessing we make every morning called Birkata Torah. In Birkata Torah we say, Veha'arevna. Veha'arevna means we're asking God, make the Torah sweet in our, in our mouths. So when we learn Torah, it should be sweet. We should enjoy it. Veha'arevna. Le'arev is to make it sweet. So I once heard from my rabbis, they said like this, there was one time a poor man, and his brother invited him to a wedding. He never went to a wedding before. He never ate a good meal before. And they serve him, you know, all these delicious meats and foods. And the brother comes and says, my dear brother, how's the food? He says, it's terrible. Everything tastes like onions. Everything's like onions. We don't even put onions in the table over here. What are you talking about? He says, I'm telling you everything. So he tastes it. He says, it doesn't taste like onions at all. I'm telling you, it's all onions. So he asks his brother, what did you have for breakfast this morning? He says, onions. Finished. So you have the taste of onions in your mouth. So therefore, anything you taste is onions. Similarly, when a person is um, uh, filled with physical pleasures and material pleasures, so it dulls the taste of Torah. So you, 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 you're going to learn Torah, but it's going through a filter of materialism, and therefore it's not the same taste. So you won't taste the sweetness of it. In order to taste the sweetness of it, it has to be pure Torah. And if you look at some of the, the greatest hachamim, they made, they made sacrifices when it came to their physical... And even rabbis that were wealthy, they had to... Uh, that was their test, not to be drawn... Uh, after their wealth. Chamavadyah take, for example. Chamavadyah Yosef was a great rabbi, but he was poor. He was impoverished. Uh, he used to give a shiur every night. And one time, somebody came and put a coffee on the table to the rav. And the rav said, no, 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 I, no, I can't drink the coffee. Maybe have a hot chocolate. Hot chocolate. Hot chocolate was like, uh, what is this over here? The, the cocoa club? What, 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 what do we do? Hot chocolate. So he said, no, you don't understand. He says, the coffee makes me hungry. And I don't have any food at home to eat. The hot chocolate at least fills my stomach. I can go to sleep. And tomorrow morning I had a piece of bread. They were calculated. And that's a great sadiqim. And that's why the Gemara says, be careful or beware in a good way. Or keep your eye on the children of the poor families. For it is from them that Torah will emanate. Because they don't have anything to do. They don't have any luxuries. What do they do? They have a book. They go and study Torah. So it says, Why? Because they have a lack of... Uh, like, like, like of ta'anug. Uh, uh, so there is, there is something to say not to spoil the students in the yeshiva with all the amenities and the luxuries. There was one time a, a, uh, a rabbi, he was walking to the yeshiva and he had passed some boulevard that had all these, uh, you know, uh, uh, um, eye-catching signs and different things that, you know, people would be drawn to look at. And he didn't even lift his head. He just kept on walking with his head down. There was somebody following him. He said, this old guy's unbelievable. He's not even attracted to any of this uh, stuff over there. Let me follow him. And he follows him and he sees he's very headstrong. He walks right into the yeshiva. And there's only yeshiva is this guy. He walks and follows him. Sits, the guy says, Rabbi, sits at the table, opens up a book. And the guy sits next to him. So the rabbi turns to him, you were following me. What, what do you want from me? What are you doing over here? He says, I noticed 
that none of the things in the street attracted you. The only conclusion I made was that must be you're going to a place that has a greater attractiveness. I wanted to see what that is. Which means you were so uh, 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 devoted and you didn't even get sidetracked. The only answer is you must be going to a greater party. I wanted to see what this party is. He says, here it is. This is the, uh, this is the Torah. When a person has the Torah, that's a ta'anuk. Basically what you're doing is you're trading one pleasure for a different pleasure. But you can't have both. You can't have your cake and eat it too. You have to be willing to de- 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 deprive yourself from one pleasure in order to taste the pleasure of Torah. Now, that's the problem with American, American Torah. American Torah is not as great as the old Torah in the old country because American Torah has ta'anug with it. It's a fact. Rabbi Gifta, Shiva tells, used to say, you can't uh, become a... Gadolador uh, with a Pepsi Cola, uh, you know, and yeah, that was his. That, to him, that was considered a big luxury, you know, the Pepsi Cola. And he talks about when he was in yeshiva. He says they didn't even have uh, coffee. He says if you were rich, you would get chicory. You would take some type of uh, herb and just put it in the water, and it gives it a, a flavor. And that was considered the the, lug- the luxury. But today, today, there's. Uh, Again, I'm not indicting anybody, and everybody's everybody's sadikim. It's it's the reality of America. Today, everybody wants to become tamid hacham, but they don't want to give up anything. They still want to have a house. I want to have a nice car. And I want to have uh, you know all the different benefits that everybody else has, and also I want to have a, 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 a scholar. Old country wasn't like that. In the old country, tamid hachamim had to make sacrifices. At least in the beginning of their career, they had to make sacrifices. Uh, in the beginning, they have to be willing to give up everything. And if Hashem then blesses them, so be it. But they don't anticipate that. I'm not, I'm not uh, uh, telling stories about myself, but I, I know that they're true because they happened to me. That uh, when I was, uh, I was not from a wealthy family. And I have, uh, when I studied the Torah, I had nothing. When I got married, I didn't have a, a credit card. I didn't have a, a, a bank account. I didn't, I didn't have anything. My whole salary was $500 a month. And I thought I was a rich guy. That's how naive I was. I don't know how to spend 500 bucks. I don't know what to do with it. I used to have change at the end of the month. And, but what my desire was uh, to study the Torah. And then I came to the Kolel. I said, oh, we give you $1,000 a month. I thought I hit the lottery. What's $1,000 a month? The maid gets more than $1,000 a month. But at the time, that was considered... Uh, and that's, again, uh, me and my friends. I'm not saying I'm any different. My friends also, they made uh, sacrifices, at least in the beginning, until you establish yourself, and then you can go uh, you know, make a career or whatever it is. But it has to be done... But if you, Rabbi Gifter said as well, he says, today in America, the boy wants to learn Shas in one night. Okay, what's wrong with that? But then he says, and he wants to sleep eight hours also that night. Which means, what his point was to say, he wants to become great in learning without any sacrifice. He wants to have his eight hours of sleep, 70 degrees temperature, he's got to have a cappuccino in front of him, and he has to have, you know, everything. Now, let me go study. It doesn't work that way. There is an element over here of mi'ut ta'anug. Mi'ut shena. Lack of sleep. Now, I can't say, ladies, that I fulfill any of the 48, but this one I could say confidently that uh, I fulfill. Maybe not by will, but that's just my schedule. Mi'ut uh, shena means you can't sleep uh, as much. Tamidah chamim have to rob sleep from their eyes. Yeah, but you need, don't say don't sleep. He's saying miuchena. You have to minimize your sleep. Listen, if you if you're a Jewish person, 
specifically we're talking about men here because we're talking about rabbis and scholars, you have no choice. Judaism does not, uh, 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 is not a religion that promotes sleeping. For the simple reason is the men have to read Kiryat Shema every morning by a certain time. So this morning, for example, you have to say the Shema by 8.19. Now, that means you can't wake up at 8.18 to say Shema by 8.19. Just like you can't catch an 8.19 train by getting up at 8.18. You have to get up at least an hour before and say Birchot HaShahar and wash up and put on your Talit and be ready for the Kiryat Shema by 8.19. By so, where it's quite common, let's say, on a Sunday, on a Sunday, huh? You could have a coffee. You could have a coffee. Not in bed, but you could have a coffee. But the point is, whereby the goyim, let's say, it's, it's quite common on a Sunday morning where you're not going to work to wake up at 9 o'clock. By us, it's not an option. You'll never see waking up at 9 o'clock. If you wake up at 9 o'clock, you're considered a deadbeat. You're considered a lazy bum. 9 o'clock, you miss Shema. You're not Jewish. But it's Shabbat. Shabbat, I want to rest. No problem. Shabbat, rest or sleep instead of sleeping till 7 o'clock, sleep till 7.15. But even where we come from, that's considered, that's considered late. My grandfather, Shalom, used to wake up at the crack of dawn, Joe Safdie, every single morning at the crack of dawn. 12 months a year, didn't matter when dawn was. Sometimes dawn is 3.30 in the morning. Before I got married, I was fortunate to go with my grandfather to Israel on a trip. And... Of course, he's much older than me, but it was very hard to keep up with him. He had a lot of stamina, even though he was an older man. And he was up so early in the morning, and, uh, and we're sharing a room together in the hotel. So we would, the sunrise, we would pray sunrise at the Kotel. So sunrise is 5.15 a.m. So I know we have to wake up at 2.30. But my grandfather would wake me up at 3.30. I thought, Grandpa, what are we doing at 3.30? And we're going to go to a class at the Kotel with Rabbi Yosef Ades, Allah Shalom, before the nets. <laughs> Why? <laughs> because... So 3.30 in the morning, so I, I, I used to remember by 7 o'clock in the morning, I was haggard. That was, that, was, that, was, that was a full day for me already. And my grandmother was just getting revved up to go to the, next, uh, to the next item. One morning, and this is a true story, we overslept. We woke up, my grandfather that is woke up, at 4.15 a.m., which is still an hour before the sunrise. And he pushed me and said, Eli, get up, we're late. And his words were, the day is shot. The day is shot. Now, I thought we woke up at 11 o'clock in the afternoon. Okay, the day is shot. That's why we're there. I look at my clock. It's 4.15 a.m. We would go down in the lobby of the hotel. They would have to unlock the doors to let us out. And I would bring in the newspapers for the hotel, though. The, the, the newspapers and the milk. And I would bring in the milk for them. That's how early it was. But the point is, that's, that's uh, Sadiqim. Sadiqim, they didn't come to this world to sleep. They'll sleep in uh, Olam Abba. They want to be up. It's a show. You want to be up for the show. You don't want to sleep for the show. Alamaz is a big show, and you got to be alive and awake to, to experience it. Now, there was a, a, a great rabbi. My body says you should try to get eight hours a night. But the Ben Ishai says you could do with six. And after you train yourself, you can even do with, with less. You can do between four hours and six hours, but it takes training. Rabbi Adis said, that if a person takes a cat nap in the afternoon, he said an hour sleep in the afternoon is like two hours at night. So it has double the, double the energy. It's a double, double battery. All right, so there are tricks to take a cat nap here and so on and so forth. But the great Sadiqim would rob sleep from their eyes. There was a rabbi called Gaon Mevilna. Now I'm not recommending this to you. I'm just letting you know 
these great rabbis. His custom was he would not sleep more than two hours a night. So that's two hours. And he wouldn't sleep more than half hour intervals. That means he would sleep for a half hour, get up, learn, sleep for a half hour, four times during the course of a, the course of a day. The stipler Rebbe, Allah Shalom that I saw, and he also was, uh, didn't sleep so much. One time somebody came to him for advice, he's having a sleeping problem. So the stipler in his, in his naive way takes out a pill from his uh, drawer and says, the doctor gave me this pill, it works like a charm, since I take it, I sleep two hours straight without interruption. Two hours, <laughs> that's my problem. <laughs> but to, to the stipler, two hours was like sleeping like Rip Van Winkle, sleeping for 100 years. He says, I just take this pill and you'll see, two hours without even, uh, without any interruption. So, again, if you, you, now, they don't mean, let me be clear, they don't mean not to sleep and get up and play on the computer. They mean not to sleep and learn. You're robbing your sleep in order to, to, to exactly, to study. But if you're robbing your sleep just so you can, uh, like you said, eat breakfast and then go, 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 uh, go shopping, so then they don't, they don't mean that. It means you have to be willing to take away from, and the great rabbis, they stay up late at night also and they study. They rob, they rob their eyes from the sleep at both ends. Huh? You can't burn the candle, I understand about that. You need to sleep, you need to be healthy. But, mi'ut shena. And there's uh, m- m- many stories of the tzaddikim that there was a great rabbi, Rav Chaim Shmuelavitz. They did all these tricks in order not to fall asleep. He would study, and he would have a bucket of ice in front of him. So if his head dozed off, he went into the ice. So they woke up. They, 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 they punished themselves so that they wouldn't fall asleep. Another rabbi took his peot and he puts it like under the table. So if he goes that, he pulls his peot. So it hurts him. He wakes up. These are the, these are the tricks. Mi'ut, mi'ut shena. Now if you're a sefaradi, so for two months of the year, you have to go to Sidihot. So you have to be in shul at 5 a.m. You have to be there already, sitting in your seat. That means you have to wake up at 4.30. That, that, that's, just, that's not being a tzaddik, that's being a standard Jew in the month of Elul and the first 10 days of uh, uh, Tishri, so that's a month and a half. And then uh, we have Osha. And a lot of nights during the year, as Jews, we've got to stay up all night and learn. Shavuot, you've got to stay up all night. Or so it's built into the religion. Uh, if you're somebody that enjoys sleep, then this, this is a, uh, one of the hard, the hard ones from the, of the 40. And I don't, I don't say I don't enjoy sleep. But we just don't get enough of it. Bimi'ut siha. What does that mean? Very good. Which means don't talk so much. What does it mean don't talk so much? So there's different ways of, uh, there's different ways of learning this. Bimi'ut siha. So one of the ways is, he says over here in the Bartenura, letzanut. It means, Siha of joking around, uh, nonsensical talk. Then he says, Bimi'ut shok. Now, what's shok? Shok sounds like letzanut. So, what it means is, they're saying like this The old custom was that when rabbis would begin to give their uh, lessons, they would open up with a, uh, I don't want to say a joke because the rabbis don't joke. They opened up with like a, a humorous or witty. Witty story. 
only to catch the attention of the students. And then once they caught the attention of the students, they began the shi'ud. But the Mishnah is saying, mi'utzchok. That should not be the, the main part of the shi'ud. It's not a, it's not a comedy act. Uh, when you come to the shi'ud, it's okay to put in some, uh, some wit, but it has to be b'mi'utzchok. Uh, when I was delivering the Dafa uh, Yumi in the first round, which is, uh, uh, was recorded, all the 2,800 pages of the shas was recorded, and in order to record it correctly, there was a student sitting in front of me, and I had to stick to the, you know, to the content, to the script of the daf. It's being recorded, after all. And the, the people that are listening to it, they want to hear the daf. It's a reg- regiment. It's a discipline. And one of the rabbis from Israel came, and he sat with us for a week, and he said, probably the hardest part of giving this shiur rabbi is to control your wit and not make any funny comments for an hour. Had you figured it out? Because you know, in the time of the Gemara, there's lines that you can say. There's certain things that present themselves that you want it, but you can't say it. So I said, I'm fulfilling myself. You minimize chok and keep to the, keep to the subject. Next one is Be'erich Apayim. Okay, patience. Okay. Patience is a virtue. Uh, the reason is, is because if a person is not going to get pay, have patience, he's going to come to anger. And if a person comes to anger, so anger, besides being a very bad trait, maybe the worst of all traits, for sure the worst of all traits. Anger is definitely the worst. Ta'arizal said on the day that you get angry, you have to go to the mikveh in order to purify yourself because it's, it brings impurity. But if you want to be a scholar, anger is a, de- a delete button. They haven't proven this scientifically yet, but on the day that you get angry, you forget. Maybe it's the stress of it, maybe it's the, uh, 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 the high blood pressure, whatever happened, but somehow Torah or knowledge removes it. And even if you're Moshe Rabbeinu, once in Moshe Rabbeinu's life he got angry and he forgot a halakha. And they credit it because he got angry, now, even though his anger was a justified anger. So therefore they're saying that Tamid HaChemim have to learn how to control the anger. And trust me, uh, they're tested uh, in many ways in the course of the day. You're dealing with people, and people have an uncanny ability to get on your nerves uh, at all times. And therefore, uh, part of it is uh, restraining and controlling yourself. Lev Tov. Okay, what does Lev Tov mean? Lev Tov means a person has to be uh, kind-hearted. Lev Tov. Now, I will tell you something interesting about Lev Tov. Lepto means you have to be generous. Uh, you have to have a, a, a good heart, uh, compassionate, let's say. Now, remember I told you that... I think I told you that they used to study one a day during Sefirat Omer. There's 49 days between Pesach and Shavuot, and there's 48 ways over here. So they would study one every day. And then on the 49th day before Shavuot, they would review all 40, and then we'd get, they would receive the Torah. So if I'm not mistaken, what number is this? You have the number? 21. 21. Beautiful. In, in some other versions of the Mishnah, not this version, obviously, Lev is the 32nd one, which actually, Lev Tov. Lev is the 32nd one, and therefore, tov is equals how lev is thirty two, and how much is tov equal? Seventeen. So thirty two and seventeen is forty nine. So in that system, on the thirty second day, they would read lev, 
and then they would know you have tov. You have seventeen more days left. Obviously, it's not in this uh, in this version. Here. The next one is be'munat hachamim. Okay, here we go. This is for everybody. Munat <clears> hachamim <throat> is you have to trust the hachamim. What does it mean? You have to trust the hachamim. You have to trust when the hachamim are saying something that it's. There's a reason why they're saying it, even though you might not understand it. It's not enough to trust the Torah. We all trust the Torah because it's from God. We know God doesn't make a mistake, but when a rabbi says it, ah, who knows if he knows? Does he know the reality? Does he make a mistake? Emunat hachamim is, I don't want to say blind, but it means trust. Trust in the hachamim, especially the hachamim of the Mishnah and the Gemara and the early rabbis. There was once a, uh, a rabbi and there was once a fellow, and he was having problems with the taxes. The government was after him. The IRS was after him. And uh, he wasn't religious. And his wife told him, why don't you go to the rabbi and uh, get a berachah? I said, well, I don't go to the rabbi. What is the rabbi going to do? What does he know about business? It's a tax issue. I need an accountant. Just go to the rabbi. What's the difference? They give you a berachah. You never know. What... And he was very stubborn until his wife convinced him. So what does it cost you? Just get a berachah and come home. What's the difference? He says, fine. He went to the rav. And he tells the rabbi his problem. So his rabbi says, okay, fine, go, here's an orange. Go home and eat it with your family, and Bezat Hashem, it'll work out. He says, this is why I didn't want to come. Because the guy said, this, this is exactly what I was worried about. Give me an orange. What is an orange? You're my problems over here. He probably thought I said I have vitamin C deficiency. He gave me an orange. I'm talking about taxes. He's giving me something to cure scurvy. So he took the orange. Okay, he took it. He took the orange. Thank you, rabbi. He went. Now he comes home, he takes charge, he throws it in the closet. So after, where's that? Don't ask, he's he, the crazy guy you sent me to. He brings me an orange. He said, what does it cost? Let's sit down and eat it. I'm not eating it. This is not going to solve my tax problem. Said, what does it cost? Us? Worst comes to worst, you ate an orange. He said, okay, he, he humbled himself. He sits down, he has seven children. He calls his children to the table. The rabbi said, so now there's nine people sitting at the table. So his wife cuts the orange into nine pieces. Now at that moment... The tax collector comes to the door. He walks in. He says, my gosh, nine people sharing one orange? This I never saw in my life. All right, we'll make a deal. We have to, he had mercy on the guy. <laughs> he said, I never saw such a thing. Nine people eating an orange? It's Hazim skinning like this we never saw. He had mercy. He says, yeah, listen, this is what the, anyway, could you believe that that would end up happening? It happened. He trusted the, he trusted the hakam against his will. He really trusted his wife. But nonetheless, it's, Electricity. He trusted his wife. We trusted the rabbi, and therefore, it worked out. There's um, there's many, many, many instances. The, ma- the the major instance, of course, where we see Emunat Hakamim was in the story of Purim. Mordechai was telling the people everything that was counterintuitive. He told them, "Don't go to the party. Why not?" If we go to the party, we could be friends with the king. We could have a relation. And then they went to the party and he said, that's a big mistake. And he's telling them, it's your fault. If anything happens, it's because you went to the party. Now everybody's bowing to Haman and Mordechai is not. And what are the people saying? It's your fault. You're provoking this guy. Just bow down to him. We're not bowing down to him as a god. We're bowing down to him as a terecheret, whatever it is. So they think that all their problems are not going to be solved by Mordechai. They think he is the root of all their problems. He's giving them bad advice not to go to a party. And then he blames it on them, and he's the one that didn't bow. They didn't have a munah. 
by the end of the story, they realize that whatever Mordechai said was correct. You don't always see it at the time that Tachamim say it. You have to put your, your trust. Many times Chabaruch would tell us things, and at the time that he said it, we said he can't be right. He can't be right. We didn't tell it to him in our brains. And sure enough, over the course of time, he would tell certain things about people. We didn't see it. He said, this is the guy, this is what he is. You're reading him wrong. And all of a sudden, over the course of time, I said, wow, the rabbi saw it many, many years before, or different methods how to do things. We said, why is he telling us to do it this way? This is the most, the most unorthodox way of doing it. We wouldn't appear, and sure enough, that was the way that brought it. It's Imunat HaChamim. They, they see things from a different, a different perspective. There was one time a rabbi called the Nodabi Yehuda. Nodabi Yehuda is Rabbi Yehezkel Landa. He was the chief rabbi in Prague. He was a great rabbi. And one time there was a guy, uh, not a religious guy, and he came uh, to the Nodabi Yehuda, and he says, you rabbis, you think you have all the knowledge and you expect people to trust you and believe you. Ah. He says, I don't believe you. I don't believe in this nonsense. He was like a cynical guy. Well, we know guys like this. But Chutzpah, uh, tell the Nodabi Yehuda this. So the Nodabi uh, Yehuda says, well, you never asked me a question. How could you just say that? He says, Nodabi Yehuda says, ask me any, uh, any question and um, I'll give you a remedy. You can remedy any of my uh, problems. Any of the problems I can remedy for you. He says, well, okay. So he says down with him. He says, listen, first of all, he says, I have a problem. He says, since I'm young, I lost my taste. I don't have taste. Could you give me advice to get my taste back? He says, okay. Uh, he says, what, 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 else, uh, what else do you have? He says, I lost uh, my memory which means I have a very, very hard time uh, uh, remembering things. I forget, very forgetful. And I'm a, uh, a liar. I, I, I barely could tell the truth. I have a very hard time. Could you help me with these three problems? He says, let me review. He says, you don't tell the truth off. He says, no, I'm a compulsive liar. And I don't have taste. And my memory is not so good. The W says, that's an easy one. Come back tomorrow, I have an answer for you. Do you have an answer for me? Why could you answer the questions? <laughs> Now, of course, he didn't have any of these problems. He made it up because he wants to show the rabbi that he can't solve these problems. Now, forgive me, ladies, but this is the story that's told. The Nodabi Yudah wanted to show him a lesson. So he went and uh, he told his servant, go to the barn, forgive me. Go to the barn, bring me excrement, forgive me from the cows, and make it into like a candy and put coconut on it and put it on a silver plate. Okay, next, the guy comes the next day and he walks in, he says, you have the answers? Before I give you the answer, please, uh, have a candy. So he takes it, he tastes, he says, this is, uh, he says, oh, look at this, the taste came back already, I don't believe it. And he says, I knew it would work, but I didn't know it would work so fast. And he says, this tastes like excrement. He says, look at that, you're telling the truth. I don't believe it, the truth came back also. He says, regarding your memory, you'll never forget this for the rest of your life. <laughs> the point is, <laughs> the rabbi was like this, oh, don't be a wise guy, he says, the rabbi has answers. Used to, and again, my apologies for such a, a, a stories as such, but nonetheless, it's brought down in the books. Chambaruch told us, uh, what should I say, more appetizing story. Uh, there was a great rabbi in Halab. His name was Harab uh, Eliyahu Hamezra Hamway Chabaz. It was a Dabedin in, in Syria. Rabbi Hamway, a great, great rabbi. So much so that even the Arabs 
would come to him for, for advice. Because they knew the rabbi has tremendous wisdom. They had imunat, the Arabs had imunat hakamim. They would kiss his hand when they would see him in the street. So what happened? The Arabs have law. Their deen is that if God forbid, not God forbid, by them it's not God forbid, if they want to divorce their wives, they don't have to write a, a get. They just have to tell her three times, tala menon, go away from here, tala, 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 three times, and that's it, she's, she's out. It's very easy. One time an Arab guy came home, he was a little drunk and all that, and he told his wife, I want you to make me ahwe and a, bring me a kaak, coffee and a, a kaak, and if you don't bring me the coffee by the time I finish the kaak, I'm divorcing you. She has to heat the water up. He took the kaak, he ate, finished, no coffee, threw out. She went back to her father's house. The next morning he woke up like a hashverosh. He said, what happened? <laughs> now he says, what am I going to do? So he went to the mufti, to the Arab, uh, you know, cleric. And the, uh, he tells him, what did you say? I said this. Did you eat it? Yes. You told her the three words? Yes. Nah, there's, no, there's no answer. Sorry. And you can't take her back. In, in the Arab law, you cannot take her back. That's it. Once you throw her out, there's no backsies. Uh, in Judaism, you can take her back if you didn't get married to somebody else, uh, if she didn't marry somebody else in between. But uh, this is the case you can't take her back. So he was stuck. So somebody told him, why don't you go to Hamazrah, Hamazrah, so You're right. He's telling me, come on, go. So the rabbi hears the case. He says, I have the answer. Come back tomorrow. Come back. To, always come back tomorrow. So he comes back tomorrow and he sits at the table and he sees on the table there's a plate with ka'ak on it. He says, is this the ka'ak, the type of ka'ak that you ate? He says, yes. He says, do me a favor, eat it. Like you ate it that night. He eats it. The rabbi picks up the plate and it's all crumbs. He says, you didn't finish the ka'ak. He says, you told your wife when you finish it, you never finished it. You can't finish a cock. There's always crumbs. You're not divorced. Go back to your wife. Oh, what a genius. How do you figure this out? The hachamim, you have to have imunah, first of all, to go to them, and you have to have imunah that they'll be able to, uh, to, solve, uh, to solve these inyanim. And you have to have trust in their... I'm going to give you one now off the record. I'm not uh, uh, making any, any statements. If it's a if I want to make a statement, I'll make it in public on a pulpit. I'm just giving you an example. It's not acceptable in halakha, let's say, and I'm not incriminating anybody here, but it's not acceptable to ride a bicycle on Shabbat for many reasons. It's not acceptable. It's carrying, it's not appropriate, it's not the way to travel on Shabbat. Your traveling has to be different. Fine. Cham Baruch was not for it. Now, he would always say that this could lead to things that are not good. We never understood what he meant. What is it going to lead to? Driving a car? I don't believe somebody's going to ride a bicycle. The reason why he's riding a bicycle is because he doesn't want to ride a car. So what, what, what did he mean? He said this could lead... And always rabbis are worried that things lead to something. And therefore, we trusted him. What happened? Look how wise the rabbi is. Now they made bicycles with electric. Now, I told you I was in the summer, and I see somebody riding a bicycle, they're not pedaling. 
I said, this is a Baba Sali can't even do this. How, how, how are you riding a bicycle without pedaling? This is Abu Hasera trick. And now, look at the rabbi's wise. Because people got so used to riding bicycles. Now they have these bicycles electric. And now they're just riding. It looks like they're riding a bicycle, but they're really not. It's electric bicycles and scooters and things like this. So it didn't lead to a car, but it led to something bad. So you see the Hachamim, they have understanding. We think the Yetzirah, he, he has an end game. So you have to trust them when they say, don't do it. Don't wait till the trouble comes. It's, oh, they were right. You have to trust them at the time. I want to tell you another example of Emunat Hachamim. Hachamim are so wise, you have to trust their... Listen to a case that Acham discusses. I changed my mind. I'm not going to tell you a case on second hand. You can ask me after. It has to do with fertility. Maybe it's inappropriate, so I'm not going to say the case. But it just it shows, it shows that the Hachamim, they have an understanding of everything. That if they're telling you don't do or do something, even, even if it looks... Like it's uh, defies logic. Uh, I have to trust what they're saying. But even with their gezerot, there's a reason. Even if they're telling you to be lenient on something. This case is Chamavadya was telling the lady to be lenient on something. Don't be strict. And nobody could understand. Why not to be strict? To be strict. Was it? No, he says, because this leniency, no, this stringency, if you're going to be stringent, it will lead to a leniency. Sometimes by being strict on one thing, it could lead to a leniency somewhere else. And therefore, you have to trust the Achamim. You say to yourself, what's the difference? Be strict. And then there was cases where people were strict on a small law and it caused them to transgress a big law. So you have to know that Achamim think these things out when they make the gizu. That's examples of Imunat Achamim. What's the next one? Kabbalat Yisurin, oh, to accept Yisurin. This is a general rule for everybody. There's a statement from Eliyahu Navi. It says in the Tanah de Eliyahu, what should a person do if he gets Yisurin? If a person gets affliction, a person gets headaches, not physical headaches, meaning troubles in life. Uh, inconveniences of life. Answer the question, ladies. Ma adam im yisurim ba'im alav. What should you do? <laughs> you know what the Yawanavi says? Yekablem, accept them. <laughs> Profound answer. Which means don't fight. The best way that yisurim go away is the person accepts them. Accepts them, he accepts them. That's what Hashem was. Once he, instead of having claims, instead of having uh, uh, negativity, Eliyahu Ravi says, and the way the rabbis explained it is, why would God give a Tamil Hakam Yisurin? So the Mesilai Sherim says, in order to, uh, to multiply his reward, what does it mean? When a person shows his loyalty, when he has uh, a resistance in front of him, so therefore it's much greater than somebody that's serving without a resistance. 
uh, if somebody's walking and he has carrying a 50-pound weight, that's much more impressive than somebody that's just walking without it. Somebody that's walking with the wind to his back or the headwinds in front of him, it's much more impressive that he has to walk against the wind. So sometimes God, to the tzaddikim that he knows can handle it, uh, they have Yisurin, and nonetheless they accept it and they still study Torah under these cases. There was a great rabbi called Rabbi Kiva Eger. Kiva Eger was one of the greatest rabbis. My rabbi, Rav Chaim Wanchap, told me that Rabbi Kiva Eger learned 200 pages of Gemara a day. 200 pages. This is not Daf Yomi. This is uh, Encyclopedia Yomi. And when he wrote those 200 pages, he wrote a commentary at the same time that he wrote. And his commentary is so strong that any time he asks a question of Akiva Ega and leaves it in Sadiq Iyun, meaning we don't have an answer, it's impossible to answer the question based on his postulates. You have to change his postulates to answer the question. He sets up a question where it's unanswerable. It was a great rabbi, a great hacham. He wrote responsa of Akiva Ega. He wrote, people asked him questions, all in halakha, and he would answer. There was one rabbi, I think the Bet Levi said, I'm not impressed by his answers. I could also write the same answers. But I'm impressed by one thing that he writes that I cannot write. And what is that? Rabbi Kiva many times would start his, his response by saying, today I received your question. That means he's able to answer such an unbelievable answer on the same day that he got the question. He says, I can answer. It'll take me a month to collect all this information. He said, but he was answering. That means he has the Torah on the tip of his brain, that he could answer. He says, today I received your question. But Rav Kiva Eger, it's well known, was racked with Yisudin. Racked with Yisudin. He says, I'm in constant pain. He had chronic pain. He says, it's impossible for him to, uh, to tolerate it. He would send letters to the great Sadiqim. Please pray for me. I cannot bear it. He writes it as the reward. And you, you say, He suffered? He says, there's not a time that I give a shi'ud where I'm not feeling the pain. But you see how much accomplished he was. You wouldn't think this would have any problems. How, how can he be so great? He was mekabel yisurin be'ahava. And nonetheless, he still became uh, a great, uh, great tamir hacham. That's kabbalat yisurin. It seems that that's one of them. Hamakirat mekomo. What does that mean? Makira Mekomo literally means know your place. All right, we'll have to explain this. Makira Mekomo. Sheosek, I'm reading the Bartenura, or Ashi. Sheosek Batora called Sha'ad de Metokak Metkayim Toratobiato. So that she learns Makira Mekomo like this. It doesn't mean a place. In, in, in court, uh, they use the word makom when a person is trying to explain their logic of his, uh, of his, of his opinion. That a sheep brings down from a Gemara that it says, the judges say, for example, when they give their ruling, hayav or zakai, guilty or innocent, they say, I've pondered the case, bimkomi. I remain with my rationale guilty. So makom in court language means my place, meaning my rational place, my logical place. Hamakira mekomo, a tamir acham has to know the rationale and the logic of whatever he's teaching. 
which is makir mekomo, I mean, you have to understand the, the reasons for it. In Hebrew, we call that sebara. The greatest rabbis and the greatest Rosh Hashivas, what they're known for in their books, is explaining the logic of it. The most beautiful books that we study, they take two laws that seem the same, and the laws have different conclusions. This law is permissible, this law is forbidden, but they look the same. So the rabbis find distinctions between the two laws, and they say, that distinction is this, and that's why it brings a different result. And it's brilliant, because you don't see it at first. So the rabbis are constantly applying what we call cold logic, sevara, in order to interpret the Torah. And those are the books that we study in yeshiva, of the greats, that applied beautiful logic to the opinions of the Torah. Sometimes when you read Torah without logic, it doesn't make sense to you. So therefore, Another explanation is, you know your place. What does it mean? Two explanations. Know your place is, you have to know your ranking. Uh, I'll tell you a story once it happened to me in Sharia Torah in, in ninth grade. I was naive. I didn't know too much in ninth grade. Now I know a little more. In Sharia Torah, we were nine boys. And we used to pray in Mikdash Melech on the second floor. That's where the school was. The whole school was one floor. And there was three or four rabbis that sat in the front. And they got shtenders. Shtenders is like these lecterns. They can put their sidur on. And, and we sat nine boys in chairs. And one morning I noticed that there's four rabbis and there's five lecterns. So there's an extra lectern over there. So, again, not thinking to be a wise guy or brazen. I went, I took the lectern. I brought it to my seat. And I, uh, I prayed. I forget if it was either Rabbi Heber or Rabbi Zafrani, one of the rabbis of the Shadar Torah. They came to me and uh, they told me something. It's, it's still stinging till today. It's, I still feel the sting of the rebuke till today. And they said, who do you think you are? <laughs> I know he's talking about, who do you think you are? I don't, I don't think I'm anybody, I'm a zero, I'm nothing. He said, what do you think over here? Anybody can just come take a shtender? These shtenders are for the, for the chamim, you're punk, you're a little kid over here in the yeshiva, you're gonna come around, oh, he gave me a whole musar. Makira mekomo, what do you think over here? There's rabbis and there's students over here. You think every student now is gonna come take the shtender? You have to know your place. I saw Kamaru do that to somebody else once also, in Mag and David, a person that uh, didn't know his place, and the rabbi very quickly shrunk him to his side so he knows exactly uh, where, where he has to be. Now, that's in the, in, the, in, in the respect way. You have to know the rabbi is the rabbi, and the student is the student. There's some people that don't know their place. They don't know their place. Uh, but Rabbi Haib explained the Mishnah to me once like this, Makira Mekomo, you have to know your ranking in... In history, which means we're not allowed to argue on rabbis of a previous generation. So, for example, I'm not allowed to come along and say, ladies, Maimonides says this. But you know what? Ah, he's wrong. I, I understand it like this. Oh, you, your ranking is 10 million. Rambam is much earlier than you. You have no right to argue on the earlier uh, hakamim. Just like we cannot argue on a Mishnah, we cannot argue on a Gemara. It's a very important yesod. You have to know your place. Now, you might be able to argue with your contemporaries because you're on equal footing. But far be it from a later 
rabbi, and we believe that as the generations descend from Har Sinai, the wisdom descends with it, so we're not as bright or wise as the earlier scholars. That would be another interpretation of Makirat Mekomo. To know exactly your standing, uh, respectfully. Uh, The third explanation of Makirat Mekomo is you should have a fixed place in the yeshiva. Uh, Not like this class where every week everybody sits in different seats. But in the in the, in, the, in the Bet Midrash, for example, the scholar should know where he, he sits in, in, in the same seat. What's the advantage of it? Makirat Mekomo. There was a rabbi called Rabbeinu Yonah. He said, when you build a house, at the time that you build the house, you should designate a certain room where you're going to pray and learn. It should be designated. You should have that anyway in your homes. You shouldn't pray, you know, uh, random one day in the den, one day in the living room, one day upstairs, one day on the porch, one day on the roof, one day in the basement. No, you should have a makom kavuah where you, where you pray, where it's known. And the rabbi says, when your children see that daddy's in that place, they know he's praying. They know he's learning. That's his uh, place where he meditates, where he talks to God. The logic is that the more, Nachamim say, you should pray in the place that you learn. Why? Because in the place that you deposit Torah, that place now becomes a holy place. Why do we go to the Kotel to pray? Because it's a holy place. So I need to make a holy place. So what do I do? I sit in this chair every week. And every week for an hour, I'm putting Torah in this place. This would be a great place to pray. Because now already it's invested with Kiddushah. Therefore, in the synagogue, for example, we learn in the synagogue and then we pray. Why? Because we invested with Kedushah of the Torah and now it becomes an auspicious place for the Tefillah to be answered. So similarly, the rabbis are saying, when you walk into the Bimash, you should know your spot. Everybody should have a, a permanent spot in the Bimash Midrash and that's the spot where he should do his learning and subsequently he should also do his praying. Last one and then we'll call it a day. Oh, no, we have to call it a day now. Because is, 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 is a class upon itself. Okay, we'll stop over here. Baruch Amen Amen. I think we need one more session. What number are we up to? 25. Wow, we're far away. Okay, we'll get there. No rush. Baruch Amen.